Welcome to Voices of the Valley, a series interviewing growers, entrepreneurs, educators, and technologists who are inventing new solutions for today's and tomorrow's challenges on the farm. Brought to you today by the Western Growers Association, supporting growers that grow the best medicine in the world. Find out more at WGA.com. Now here's your Voices of the Valley host, Director of Western Growers Center for Innovation and Technology, Dennis Donahue. This is Dennis Donahue, the Director of Western Grower Center for Innovation and Technology, and welcoming you back to another episode of Voices of the Valley. And I'm joined by my good and cold friend, Candace Wilson. Candace, I'm glad we were able to uh, get together before we get started. After we bring on our guests, we'll let everyone know we truly are deeply immersed in the current events. And we know something, or you do, a little bit about climate change. So we'll let you. Uh, that is the forward. fact. We have been buried in snow and I'm at 3,500 feet. We've had over three feet of snow. We've been out of power for the last two weeks, no internet for one week. So we've been struggling, like, you know, going back in time, but the good news is the internet is back and hopefully the lights will be back on in the next couple of days. So things are looking up around here, Dennis. Well, and just to kind of help you get into the spirit of warming up, I chose a particularly unique and delightful <laughs> guest today, uh, Francisco. Uh, see, now, Francisco, you've already confused me because you told me I had options on how to say your last name. So Portuguese, <laughs> you pronounce the J, okay, Dennis. Jardim, there but, you go. Uh, even though this is audio, we've got a visual and clearly there's no danger of Francisco getting snowed in in Brazil. So welcome from Brazil. And Francisco, thanks for joining us today. It's an honor, Dennis. Uh, thank you very much for the invitation, Candice. It's an even bigger honor. And yes, we are in the middle of summer in already what is a pretty hot region. So absolutely no concerns over snow over here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 you did hold out the prospect, depending upon how climate change works out, because you know, you're a young guy, so maybe some, in fact, does it ever snow in Brazil? At the very Southern part of Brazil, once in a while, we'll have a, a little bit of tiny snow, but very rare, very rare occasions. What has been going on over the past few years that we've been having a lot more inconsistencies in terms of rainfall and the seasons have been getting a little bit mixed up, but there's a rumor out there that climates are changing a bit. So uh, that might be the <laughs> Yeah. We've heard something about that up our way as well. We're, well, we're excited to, uh, visit with you. And why don't we just jump in with an easy question. Tell us about what you're currently doing, your background and your evolution to uh, ag tech. Sure, Dennis. So we, I'm, I'm from Brasilia, Brazil, which is the capital of the country, way out in the Midwest of Brazil, which for, for those that don't know, is the heart of Brazilian agriculture. It's been really what's boosted Brazil into the global spotlight over the past four years in terms of transforming us into a global agribusiness powerhouse in the middle of Goiás, Mato Grosso, Tocantins, many of these weird names that have become a certain household agribusiness names for us here in Brazil. And I worked and came from the traditional financial markets, the dark side of the force, uh, hedge funds and banking. When I was in my late 20s, I had the honor of being a Billiken in my undergraduate studies in St. Louis, Missouri. So I had really seen up close in front a little bit of the heartland of American agriculture. And I wanted to start in Brazil a venture capital firm. Brazil has a very underdeveloped financial services industry for entrepreneurs. So there's no entrepreneurial capital here. There was none at the time. So if an entrepreneur wanted to raise capital that he didn't have to pay back in the form of debt, that he didn't have to over collateralize, and it wasn't expensive in terms of interest rates, and that actually you know, was, was a partner with him and helped him build the business, then he had no option. So seeing that and seeing how big and, and important it is to have a thriving venture capital industry as it is in the US, I decided to start a business in this sector. 
I mirrored myself into what the uh, Americans have done in, in Northern California and other places. And we started a venture practice here, very much like the American venture capital model. But very quickly, we realized that Brazil is not Silicon Valley. And what we do have that is unique, is competitive, is exciting, is entrepreneurial, is agribusiness. Our farmers have a very uh, a risk pro culture. They love to see, they love to plant, they love to raise capital, be debt, plant. If they lose their harvest, they will raise again and they'll plant again next year. So the entrepreneurial culture and agribusiness and the amount of science that is produced in Brazil in the agriculture space, and Brazil has such a large agricultural economy thriving and the only large agricultural economy in the tropical sector. After a couple of years in the, in the business, I identified that, well, if it's worth being a venture capitalist in Brazil, it's an ag tech venture capitalist. So we decided to become a full-blown ag tech specific VC in the early 2010s, 11. And then since then, we've raised funds to invest in ag tech entrepreneurs. We are currently managing our largest fund. It's nearing $60 million, which for our region, when you convert it to local currency, is just a huge ton of lots, tons of money. And uh, we've been investing in many of the same exciting things that we see globally from California to Israel, uh, IoT, data science, satellite imagery, biologics, um, genetically modified proteins for animal livestock and, and reproduction, and many of these other sectors. And many of the trends are catching on very quickly. Today, I'm happy to say we are the largest ag tech venture firm in Latin America, and we've been partnering up with some fantastic founders that are solving some of the biggest challenges we have in the region. So that's a little bit what we do. And you know, we learn and we mirror ourselves a lot from what's going on in the U.S. You speak with so much energy. It's pretty exciting and contagious. One of the questions that I have is around the, you talk about just the global trends and how they're very similar, but I am curious, are there specific priorities that you guys are working on there in Brazil? Yeah, Candace. So just on the energy part, besides Brazil being a global leader in soybean, global leader in the animal protein value chain, cotton, uh, number one producer and exporter of citrus, we are also the world's largest producer of coffee. So we have a lot of coffee, and that's definitely something that's been powering my mornings here in Brazil. So that's a strong element of my of my energy. <laughs> uh, but we always take every single opportunity to pitch Brazilian agribusiness whenever we get the chance. Well, that's a good point. I mean, a lot of the things that we're backing over here, we're taking advantage of huge underdeveloped sectors of the economy that you don't have the same opportunities in the mature ecosystem such as the US. So for example, farmers in Brazil, they have a very difficult time accessing credit to finance their harvests, buy their inputs, buy their machineries. And what's developed in Brazil over the past few decades is that industries, the large input industries, global multinational companies that have Brazil as a number one and number two profit center in the world, <clears throat> in order to not lose their sales, they had to build out these large financial services areas, which became barter areas, where they give seeds, fertilizer, crop protection uh, chemicals in exchange for the promise of future delivery of harvest. This is a barter transaction. And what we saw and many entrepreneurs saw is an opportunity to build out now a deep tech financial services industry building digital banks. And that's been one of our core investment areas. So ag fintechs, as we call them, companies are taking advantage of a multi-hundred billion dollar opportunity to provide financial services for farmers. That's definitely been one of our core investment areas. Another one that's been very core is, I don't know if everybody's aware, but Brazil it's been a tropical agriculture climate, we have two to three harvests a year. So this means that plants, pests, diseases, weeds, they grow all year round. We don't have a winter, as the one you're facing right now over there, that freezes biological activity over. So a lot of the people, and I'm sure our growers listening will, will relate, they look at this and they think, wow, these guys can have two to three outputs a year and, and you know increase their production. Well, that also means that you got to control the pests, you got to control the weeds, you got to control the diseases 
all year long. And what does this mean in, in, in practical terms? This means you're going to apply a lot more crop protection. What does this mean? It means that you're selecting naturally resistant pests and diseases and weeds with a lot more frequency. Thus, over the past 10 years, what we've seen as an alternative to the traditional chemical industry is a biologics industry. Now, Brazil is having the rainforest and being tropical. We have around 80 to 90 percent of global biodiversity. So there's a huge wealth of natural predators, natural enemies, microbes, viruses, bacteria that the local industry has learned to bioprospect, scale production and deliver to growers as another weapon in their arsenal to control and do integrated pest management. There's no view in Brazil that will ever be able to do pest management efficiently without integrating biologics, chemicals, GMOs, and more and more with uh, CRISPR being in action, other types of biologics and activities. So that's been another major area of our investment and interest. I believe Brazil is building right now probably one of the most sophisticated biologics industries in the world. We see multinationals like Copert investing a lot in our region, but we see homegrown companies backed by venture capitalists and private equities also being very, very aggressive and growing. So I think those are two sectors. Perhaps a third major area of interest is the disintermediation of the value chain. So Brazil, contrary to what happened in the US, we still haven't had the phenomenon of consolidating ag retailers. So the ag retail and distribution sector in Brazil is highly fragmented. And the retailers in Brazil, they bring to growers three key elements to you know, a value proposition. They bring logistics in a continental country. I'm going to give you a data point that most people don't know. Brazil is larger than continental USA. If you take out Alaska and Hawaii, so it's a very big country with very precarious infrastructure. So it's difficult to get around. So logistics is a big key element of retail distribution, but they also bring credit as they know the farmer at the last mile. They do a lot of the credit screening, right? And they bring technical assistance. They offer prescriptions to be able to buy certain chemicals and all these things. So these three elements elements have made the ag retailers be quite sticky and not being able to be dis disintermediated by any digital technology and no private equity has consolidated this. Now the consolidation is happening, but we're betting that e-commerce will become a major driving force during this consolidation. So e-commerce for ag has been another major strategy, selling inputs, farm equipment, and other uh, accessories online as well. You opened up the equivalent of a huge Pandora's box of directions to go. I'm, I'm kind of wrestling with, okay, which question do I want to ask you first? Pick up the e-commerce piece a little bit. You know, that's been, as I've observed it, you know, since you're talking about equipment dealers and inputs and that sort of thing. And Brazil, typically, though you and I talked about this, you know, there's citrus and they're starting to be more and more uh, specialty crop vegetables, et cetera, in your neck of the woods. But typically you kind of track more with our Midwest. And e-commerce platforms have been, I think it's fair to say they've done better in the Midwest than they've done in the West and where you have specialty crops and you're turning ground over every 90 to 120 days, a lot of different crop rotations. So two questions, how does the e-commerce work on a practical basis? And then what does your grower base look like? I mean, I'm going to guess if it's things like sugarcane or you know that type of thing or beef or whatever, those are huge operations. And then when you get into the veg side for fruit, are those smaller or you know, what's a typical Brazilian grower, if that's a fair question? And then how does the e-commerce platform uh, fit in? I mean, it's a very different vertical industry than the music industry or the book industry. So to, as, as those were disrupted by an Amazon or these guys now, because it's very concentrated in the industry side. So in Brazil, we have a phenomenon that the retailers are what we call uh, single flags. So you have a Bayer retailer, a Singenta retailer, a Curteva retailer. This means it's not owned by these industries, but they only operate those guys, those kinds of products. So the retailers, they tend to sell one type of supplier type of technology, right? So there's an integration and there's a mutual 
interdependency. The industry depends on the retailers, right? So it's a very difficult process for you to put e-commerce in terms of taking the distributor out because the industry depends on the retailer and she's not willing to pick a fight all at once. So there's a cold war going on. Both sides see each other as they want to take the other one out, but they pretend they're all happy and they're they're, they're big, uh, <laughs> dependent on each other. Uh, perhaps a little bit to what was the case with debt between China and the US you know, until recently. So there's a mutual interdependence on this aspect. Now, on that point, what we've been betting on and what we've been seeing is that there's a digitalization of this relationship that is happening similar to what happened in China with what we saw big companies there, like Alibaba is a great example, which is we create a digital shopping center, let's say in those respects, and we set up shops for these digital retailers and for their suppliers and industry, and they pay these companies what would be the equivalent of a square meter, square feet. So they pay a monthly revenue for these companies, a monthly, uh, let's say, rent, and they set up their digital shops. So they have the bricks and mortar shops, they have the products laid out logistically spread, they have their team, they have their technical teams to be able to do technical assistance. But now they have, as phenomenon over the past three, four, five years, they also have a store in the internet, in one of these digital shopping centers that generate traffic, offer him all the metrics. And now these retailers in the industries are experimenting for the very first time, the wonders of having a digital channel, which is all of a sudden, you know exactly who came to your store, how long he spent over there, what his average ticket is. You have all this data that you can metrify, and then you can do campaigns to be able to reach out to these people and personalize offers. And you know, it's a no turning back, but it's not happening in terms of disruption. We are using the word evolution as we're seeing a bricks and mortar industry that was you know, completely outside of the digital realm, all of a sudden come into the digital realm and start to operate on both channels. And we don't see a future where the uh, bricks and mortar offline industry will not exist exist. I mean, you always need to have the logistics center, we'll always need to have the technical assistance at the end, and we'll always need to have some kind of technical awareness for the credit aspect of the business as well in the retailer. So we don't think that ag is going to play out like the bookstores played out or like the music industry CDs played out. No, we think there's always going to be a very important role for the physical retailers to get. Well, given what you described in terms of some of the logistical challenges of just simply moving around the country, it sounds like the whole digitization is a heck of an enhancement and more of an opportunity. It's it's an add-on. And then, you know, you mentioned some pretty big powerhouses there, Bayer, et cetera. I mean, those folks know how to take care of business and presuming they do that, then this should create the possibility of growth because products and services become more accessible because you have that digital component added on to the bricks and mortar. Exactly. And it's exciting. It's an exciting battlefield because you have all these crop protection big guys that I mentioned, and then you have an 800-pound gorilla in the room, which is a nutrient, which is in the fertilizer sector, verticalized and buying a lot of players on the ground. They bought what, in my opinion, was the best Bayer distributor called TechAgro about two years ago. So they're buying retailers as well. And some of the large crop protection companies are starting to buy retailers as well. So they're starting to verticalize. So it's an interesting moment. You see a lot of tension, a lot of friction, a lot of strategic offensive plays. How it's going to end up, I don't know. But what we can say is that there's going to be a leapfrog. We're probably going to bypass many of the disintermediation or the consolidations that happened in the US where you guys consolidated when it was still completely offline. And how it's going to end up in the day after is going to be very interesting. But the tech adoption is exploding. And then getting on to your other question on how the industry is set up or how the agriculture economy is set up. 
We have the big row crops and the big grain producers, right? And this is the bulk of the economy. And just going back to the logistics, there's one data point that I think is important. 80% approximately of Brazilian logistics is highway logistics, okay? So in terms of railways, riverways, et cetera, we're still very precarious. I think this is a huge avenue of productivity that we'll be able to expand over the coming years and decades as more foreign direct investment builds out this infrastructure and improve ports, but still we're primarily highway driven. And even the highways are still quite precarious in many of the places like Route 163 out of Mato Grosso. And you see these train trucks all lined up in the lines and ports in Santos or other of the major ports that we have. And it's still a major bottleneck where farmers, they're very efficient inside the farm gates and then they lose a lot of the productivity and efficiency once the grains leave the farm gates. So in terms of how the economy is set out and how the growers are set out. So first of all, it's important to understand, and I think that in the US you have very similar You can't generalize Brazil as being a homogeneous operation. Farmers in the South, farmers in the center, farmers in the North are radically different. The size of the farms, the level of technification, technology adoption, how aggressive they are, very different. So when we get to what has been the most growth, which is the center West, what we call the Cerrado, the Savannah, which has really been what's grown over the past 40 years, these guys are larger. So these guys are in the 1,000, 2,000, 5,000 hectares up in terms of farm sizes, no? When we talk about grains, those are the guys, and, and it's big and it's very professionalized. They're larger. When you get those guys, uh, soybeans coming to the south, Paraná, Rio Grande do Sul, they're smaller, but with much more in terms of size parity, technification. So they've been adopting more technology for quite some time. And then when I'm saying grains, I mean soybean corn and cotton. And remember, corn is very big here in our region as the what we call the winter harvest, which is in June, July, as being the safrinha that we call it. So it's one of the crop rotation strategies to be able to have multi-crops, to be able to keep soil fertility, health, et cetera, and to be able to also have an in-between harvest. So one of the questions that I have, and, and when you talk about e-commerce, you know, here in the United States, some of the companies that have been trying to do that, training the growers on how to interact with the e-commerce, with the system has been one of the struggles. Do you know, how are they managing that there in Brazil? So I would say there's a pre-COVID and a post-COVID. I will tell you that in February 2020, I would reach out to a grower and I would say, let's do a video conference. And he wouldn't have any idea what I'm talking about. Uh, In April, I would call that guy up and he would say, hey, are we using Zoom, Meets? What are we doing? (laughs) So, I mean, there there was a leap. And these guys, in some respect, it's because they were tired or they, they didn't feel comfortable receiving what we call the RTV, the sales technical representatives in their farms to do the demonstrations and the day camps during COVID. So they would say, nah, don't come over here. Let's do a video conference call. The cooperatives, the same thing. And at the same time, they're exploded a lot of events transferring knowledge through these video conferencing. So we had a large leap in terms of digital literacy, in terms of farmers. So there's a pre-COVID and there's a post-COVID. In the post-COVID, technology adoption from a digital perspective accelerated. It was already growing significantly from 2016 onwards. It was slowly, 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 month by month, by month, continuously. You could see that it was happening. You can see that there was a revolution. But because smartphone penetration was still very low, because connectivity was still very low, it was still something that was you know, from a small proportion. But as we know, in the uh, exponential growth side of things, once the exponential growth becomes relevant, once the mass, once the base becomes relevant, it grows very quickly. And in COVID, it accelerated and it became big very quickly. So the digital literacy has really improved and increased all the uh, fairs and events that we used to have. And we used to have several very large agricultural fairs here in Brazil, the Agri Show, the Expo Winter, the Borea Farm Show, the Agrotins. Uh, and these were major trade venues 
not only for getting to know technology, for networking and growers, but also to engaging with Deer, with Case, with Bayer, all these guys. And these were all canceled and they're getting canceled again now with this Omicron pandemic. So, I mean, they're being forced to transfer those trade marketing budgets to digital budgets and then bringing farmers online. So, I mean, the farmers have really become much more digital animals here in Brazil. They've adapted very well. And this has made our life of distributing technology very easily because one of the biggest barriers to distribute technology in Brazil for farmers was it's continental, as Dennis pointed out. It's difficult to reach these guys. And most of the old big ag industry always said, they pointed their fingers to us and said, you're never going to sell technology if you don't drive 600 kilometers out in Goiás, have you know four coffees with the grower, look them in the eye and promise him. Well, after COVID, there was no option. So the companies that had 600 technical representatives, the big ag companies, all of a sudden they had 600 salaries to pay that were not giving them sales. And the small technology companies that were coming up, all of a sudden they had these digital strategies, inside sales on the telephones, reached farmers. All of a sudden these guys were much more competitive, much leaner, much more efficient in terms of getting technologies out. So, and, uh, and it does not rule out you can still have your four cups of coffee being on digital, as you indicated <laughs> earlier, so that you were still supporting your industry and your investment. So the yeah, coffee can still take place. It's a good month to say this because uh, last year we had a horrible freeze in, in our coffee growers in Minas Gerais and in Sao Paulo. So it was a very tough year for them. But now we're seeing record coffee prices. Coffee guys are very rich here in Brazil and they're throwing a lot of parties, which is probably one of the reasons why Omicron spread so quickly. <laughs> there, there you go. The coffee guys are the super spreaders, huh? Talk, and I feel talk. like maybe we should start to get an invitation to that, right, Dennis? Yeah, there, there you go. That, I, that uh, sounds like a good time. Well, no, I, I will tell you in the wonderful world of the ag tax circuit, when you used to see the live events that were held there. You couldn't help but be impressed by the ag tech ecosystem and all the folks that were gathering. Talk a little bit about, you know, I do want to go back to, you know, your leadership on the biological side, but talk a little bit about since we're Western growers and, you know, have a bit of a specialty crop bent in our thinking in terms of fresh fruits, vegetables, and nuts. Uh, you know, obviously you've got a huge citrus industry down there. And as you pointed out the first time we talked a number of months ago now, uh, you know, there are a couple of regions that really are emerging on the the veg side that kind of tracks similarly to, let's say, the, our coastal regions. Uh, what's the specialty crop world look like in Brazil, including citrus? And are you having to fight some of the same challenges our friends in Florida have in terms of disease? And California is certainly on guard. Uh, what's that world look like in Brazil? The citrus is one of the sides in the specialty sector that really matured quickly from a professionalization, verticalization side, and including many of our citrus kings here that consolidated, acquired significant operations in Florida. So it really is a multinational operation. It's a big operation. You have guys like uh, Louis Dreyfus that are you know, completely verticalized here. They operate growers and they also operate process and export. So citrus is a very specific value chain concentrated it's a little bit different from the rest of the specialty sector here in Brazil. The rest of the specialty sector, again, it depends on where you look at it from the geography side of Brazil. If you come here in the south and the southeast of the country, it's much more fragmented, smaller guys. But if you go to the northeast of the country, it's a specialty industry and a few regions to keep in the name. Petrolina out in Pernambuco, uh, Juazeiro, and some of those regions, they're very focused on exporting, exporting melons and, and other uh, specialty crops. So they're more consolidated. They're larger. Since they're export-driven, they're much more focused on quality. And these guys are more on the professional side. So it's tough to homogenize. Brazil is a very different country from side to side, coast to coast, from cultural perspective, economic, social sides. And interesting on the specialty side, the Northeast, which tends to be the poorer part of the country, is much more well-developed and well-structured. And it's very export-oriented. So and where are those exports heading? Are they generally heading to Europe or are they heading to Europe? Europe is, is definitely one of the largest markets. 
Well, it seems like, you know, from a biological standpoint, and I, and I still remember, you know, and the, and the beauty of being able to uh, Zoom, you almost kind of smiled a bird and chuckled when we were talking about biologicals. And I was explaining, you know, our growers in the Central Valley, you know, hang out with the Chileans, occasionally the Argentinians and Peru, but not so much Brazil. So as we kind of begin to think about biologicals and some of the regulations we're facing, and you just kind of smiled like you'd swallowed a bird and said, well, we have this little thing called the Amazon, which, you know, I guess from a diversity, biodiversity standpoint, there's probably not a better platform on the planet in terms of those types of tools coupled with if you're exporting. And, you know, Europe has also kind of been ahead of that game. That Brazil really speaks to a pretty powerful one-two punch on the emerging world of biologicals. Though I love the way you laid it out because chemistry is not going away. Things like CRISPR are going to be part of the mix. So it's really kind of an evolution, but there's no question the emergence of biologicals is on the horizon. And, you know, we're looking to uh, drive a major initiative around accelerating the key biologicals. So just talk a little bit more about the biologicals and how would you frame the opportunities? Because I mean, biologicals, that's a great word, big catch all, but where's the focus on all that? Yeah, great, great, great point. It's a point that gets us excited. We're probably one of the biggest backers and investors, and we clearly came too early. And now that the party in the biologic sector here in the region is heating up, it's definitely much more exciting. So one thing to point out, to talk about biologics uh, in Brazil, there's no way that we cannot mention the sugarcane industry, and, and which is where it all started. So the biologics industry in Brazil, which came to life in the 70s and 80s, was very much focused on sugarcane, controlling certain pests in the sugarcane industry, like the Diatreia saccharalis, which is also known as a sugarcane broth. And this meant developing two or three different types of organisms uh, from fungus, but also a parasite wasp called the Cotesia flavips. And this was done between universities of government sponsorship, transferring to the sugar mill owners and the sugar mill owners, they operate or they, they support their own farmlands, but also a huge supply chain of suppliers of uh, sugar cane, of cane, which becomes sugar. And of course, Brazil had a large program here in the 70s in the ethanol sector, which was sponsored by the previous military dictatorship. And Brazil became a major ethanol producer in those days, which now continues as we have a large, uh, what we call flex automotive industry. And we have very large ethanol players that came from this industry consolidated. And this is where the biologics industry started. Now, sugarcane, even though Brazil is a large player, the largest producer of sugarcane and ethanol in the world, it's not enough to build a thriving biologics industry that was just concentrated in sugarcane. So it needed to make the leap towards row crops, you know, getting into grains and eventually in specialty crops. It needed to go to those sectors. And one thing that we learned, we invested in our first biologics company back in 2009. And one thing that we learned is the sustainability pitch does not take you too far away with growers here. They're, they're, they're very focused on the economics. So until that they really see that that technology is going to be cheaper or at least more efficient than the competitive technology, they will not substitute just because it's, it's more sustainable. You know, it's, it's, it's a nice buzzword to use in, in what we call the Faria Lima, which is the Brazilian equivalent of Wall Street, but it doesn't work when we go to the Cerrado. And, you know, and, and this was very clear. What happened in 20, I believe it was 2012, I could be off by a year or so, is we had a nice caterpillar called Helicoverpa amigera that came, I believe it came from Australia. And, uh, you know, cost of globalization, as a lot of people learned with COVID and, and, you know, as China had learned the previous year of the African swine flu, is that globalization doesn't mean that just Dennis, Candace, and myself jump on an airplane. It means that uh, caterpillars also do the same thing and they show up over here. 
And this caterpillar that showed up in Brazil, it was highly resistant to chemicals. So they had been, you know, applied, 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 applied to chemicals, chemicals, and they had been selected. So it was an extraordinarily resistant caterpillar. And it came out and it devastated the row crop industry. Uh, I mean, it was serious stuff. And farmers just went wild and saying, I got to find something that controls this. You know, some crazy people said, well, you know, there's a parasite wasp called Trichogamma, Trichogamma uh, preciosum. And apparently this parasite wasp does control. And there were some funguses as well that also uh, worked efficiently against it. And they said, well, I don't believe these things work actually, but there's nothing else. So I'm just going to try it out. And then they realized, you know, soybean producers and other ones, they realized that, wait a second, this works, you know? Caterpillar and Lycoverpa populations are going down. Wow. And I credit the Lycoverpa, that caterpillar that came to Brazil, as the primary disseminator of biologics culture away from sugarcane and into the real serious volume crops that we had. And then since then, we started a revolution. And it's been a revolution where year after year after year, biologics have been growing, have been growing, have been growing. And they're still growing. It's something like 30 to 40% a year. Now, remember, the crop protection market is a 10 to $12 billion market when we look at the chemical side. So insecticide and fungicides are approximately 60% of this 10 to $12 billion and 40% is herbicide, right? Out of which the biggest chunk is glyphosate. So this is the chunk that not only is biologics eating out, but it's also growing the pie. Now, I agree that it's not a revolution, it's an evolution. However, when you start to use biologics, you need to change the way you use chemicals because the agrochemical impacts the efficiency of your biologics. So it drove a revolution in the way that crop protection is seen and done. And and this was also a big promoter of many different systems of, of agriculture, where you do more crop rotation and you use other tools as well. But it really started a major dynamic shift in the way crop protection is seen in a more systemic manner, using biologics, using agrochemicals. And one point, I remember when I was speaking to agronomic university professors back then in the time, and there was something that was already uh, also pretty well accepted, is that the time that these pests would take to become resistant to new GMO seeds, so seeds that would be uh, plants that would be resistant against a certain type of caterpillar, for example, that was expected to be resistant for many, many years, those cycles were also shortening. So the chemical players, they started to see the biologics industry as a way, if I couple biologics with my chemical molecules, I can increase the product cycle life of one of my chemical molecules because instead of it becoming a losing efficiency and having five to six year resistance periods, I can do nine to 10 years because as growers in our audience will know, I mean, the way resistance works is when you apply chemicals, you kill 98, 99, 96, 97% of the the pest population. What you didn't kill, you didn't kill because they're resistant and then they will multiply and then you're going to have to increase dosage every single year. Now with biologics, if you apply it right, you can take out a good portion of those two, three, four, five percent that survived and had resistance. And you can postpone the significant portion of the pest population that will be resistant. And remember, the cost of having two, three harvests a year means that this resistance process of selecting resistant pests, it's two, three times faster than it is in an economy where we only do it once, right? So everything is quicker. Everything is more expensive when it comes to being able to have a longer product cycle of a chemical molecule. And it's becoming more and more expensive to develop a new chemical molecule and be able to get it for regulatory process approvals and be able to launch it, right? So it's become a process of survival. And we still haven't seen any of the big chemical players here in Brazil buy biologics companies. 
but they've started to flirt and they've started to flirt very aggressively. And we expect to see either local biologics companies going public in the capital markets here and really exchanging blows with the chemical players. We know some of these have these pretensions and we expect to see the big chemical players start to buy the local biologics companies. And they need to buy, as Dennis well pointed out, because they're local microbes, they're local funguses, they're local viruses, they're local parasites that they're using. I mean, this is just so fascinating and I can spend hours talking about this. One of the questions that I have is about the boots on the ground. You talked about how you have the biologicals in combination with the chemistry now. They're working together to support the farm. How are the startup biologicals engaging with growers and the chemistry companies? I'm just curious how that triangle looks in finding that perfect recipe for the farm. I'll give you the examples that we have in our portfolio. We've seen that the big chemical companies they have a significant challenge in getting their traditional distribution platforms, their internal salesmen, the distribution platforms, the distributors and retailers to switch from biologics into chemicals. And I'll tell you why, in my opinion, because in the beginning, they saw it as a threat and they spent a lot of time telling farmers that that stuff doesn't work, that stuff doesn't work. So now it's difficult to do a roundabout face, and, but this is happening. So what we've done in our biologics companies, but I see that the, our competitors, their you know, homegrown biologics companies do the same thing, is we've built our own distribution platforms. We've hired our own salespeople. We've done our own trade marketing work with retailers. We've done a lot of field trials on the ground of growers. We've done a lot of scientific studies with local universities so that we can print the science, publish the science. So it's been a long work of evangelizing. But it's undeniable that it's been successful. And it hasn't been successful just because these companies have been efficient. It's because uh, growers need more weapons in their arsenal. And this is more true than ever in a, in a tropical agriculture ecosystem, which is, you know, it's, it's, whole, it's spring break for, for pests, right? Because it's more moisture, it's more, more, more hot, it's a little hotter, it's biological activity, there's no diapausal, so there's no freezing. I mean, it just grows, 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 grows. So it, it's just they need every single weapon in their arsenal. So it's expected that the biologics industry would thrive here. It didn't have the kind of support, perhaps, from the government or other places that Europe had, for example, where we know that not only the governments, but the retailers, they started to punish certain countries, such as Spain, with their peppers, the red peppers and the tomatoes that had too many chemical residues. They would block them out. That, that didn't really happen in Brazil. What happened in Brazil was really a situation where farmers needed more weapons in their arsenal to control pests. And, you know, here in California in particular... Sure, there are challenges with the pests and they will always exist, but there's also these challenges in this regulatory environment that we live in here. So the growers are kind of being forced to, again, have a different kind of conversation. And so one of the questions that I have too is just, we talk about the global landscape of agriculture. We're all facing similar challenges, but if you look at the startups there in Brazil that you're funding, what is kind of that crossover from maybe the Western US or the United States startups and those venture funds? How does that dynamic work? Yeah, so I think one thing that is important to note is that capital scarcity until very recently was much larger here than in the US. So these companies had to bootstrap a lot longer, right? And, and, and they really had to do a lot more of less capital. So they became much more capital efficient. In ag, as we all know, it's very different from, from consumer technologies where you sell technologies all year. I mean, even though we have two to three harvests a year here in Brazil, there are still windows during the year where you can sell certain types of technology, whether it's planting, seeding, harvesting, crop protection, uh, soil fertility, et cetera. You don't sell it all year long, right? Even though it's a continental country, even though certain seasons are different in one area or the other one, you still have windows, right? So this means that it's a longer maturity process. It's a longer validation process. Farmers in our neck of the woods are 
are suspicious characters in terms of being, as we call desconfiados in Portuguese. So they, they don't believe things until they've seen it. They've seen their neighbors try it. So, uh, I mean, it, it has been it has been a while, a cycle, you know, our, our, our growth. But adoption has really sped up. What, one thing that I think perhaps might be quite different is I think in the U.S. you have certain infrastructure that we don't have or we didn't have here in Brazil. And, I, and I'll be infrastructure in two major avenues, infrastructure for developing groundbreaking technologies. On one side, I mean connectivity. So, I mean, you, you need to have connectivity to really roll out and launch these Internet of Things and software as a service platforms and get widespread adoption where the grower has an experience using this digital technology that really makes it worthwhile, right? So since the connectivity here was until very recently, and still is, but it's improving drastically, by the way, we were concerned because we we're about you know, probably a year behind you guys on the 5G. And we saw that you guys just had a problem with the 5G and the civil aviation uh, canceling it out. So we're betting big on the 5G coming in and solving some of these problems here. But infrastructure it works great been- until it snows, by the way. Once it snows, it's history. <laughs> Well, we shouldn't have that problem here in Brazil. We, 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 we've yeah, been having, you're good. We, 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 we've been having some tornado issues uh, in the South, so it's been a while. But I would say infrastructure uh, has, has delayed the process a little bit. The second one, which I also put as tech infrastructure, but perhaps that's not the best terminology, is in the human capital side. So we have a much tighter human capital market when it comes to uh, talent in computer science, engineering, et cetera. So we have fantastic agronomists, but we need more uh, integration between agronomists, engineers, telecom engineers, hardware engineers, and software engineers. These are things that became a little bit slower here. I think in the US, you guys have a longer culture of these multidisciplinary entrepreneurs getting together and building out these great companies. So I think those factors probably made it different. That said, and I'm going to go out on a limb here and be a little bit uh, controversial, we've been seeing Israeli and North American companies trying to take a go at the market, right? And what we usually see, Candice, is uh, these guys come with what we call in Portuguese very high heels, so very self-confident. You know, well, we come from this place, you know, our technology is frontier technology, we're going to take over the market. And what usually happens after three or four years of several failures and the mouth-to-mouth between farmers of being very aggressive, saying, yeah, that guy promised me and didn't deliver, is that what we see now is these guys clearly were not successful and the local entrepreneurs developing local technology solutions, tackling local problems, are starting to win out and are starting to clearly getting the product market fit the pricing fit. They built their platforms based on the challenges locally, whether it's infrastructure or it's human capital. They understand the local operators. And remember, I mean, I remember when I went to school in St. Louis and, and I was in the US, I always thought, no, American farmers or, or American growers are, are much better than Brazilian growers because they speak English, right? Well, when you come over here and, and you start to see what the Brazilian grower is like, I mean, he's very sophisticated. We have companies like SLC, which in my opinion is the most efficient grain operator in the planet. And the Maji Group is another case, the Bon Success. These are guys that operate, I mean, SLC is operating 600,000 hectares, right? I believe that's 1.8 million uh, acres approximately. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, I mean, these guys are very hardcore in terms of using fertility, using biologics, using uh, machinery. They're talking about autonomous farming. They're implementing, they're developing their own processes, their own technologies inside their farms. And we've been seeing these these things really mature and, and, and scale as of recently. So exciting. I think we need a trip to Brazil, Dennis. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, you know, the one the one thing that is occurring to me, and, and, I, and I don't want to rule that possibility out, is, you know, Francisco, we've spent a lot of time uh, focused, and Candace has been involved in this as well, you know, automation and labor issues. And one of the strategies has been uh, dual hemisphere on certain, certain things, you know, particularly on the permanent crop side. So people will run down to Australia or New Zealand, but it, it sounds like in, in terms of, you know, the biological world, you know, Brazil and the U.S., we ought to get together on a dual hemisphere strategy 
you know, because that whole arena was, I mean, just the magnitude of what you all are looking at, what intersects in Brazil, it seems like we need to be aware of that. I know we're looking at a new strategic initiative around, you know, how do, how do we accelerate some of these solutions in those key areas? But if you don't hit your window in terms of right time of year in California, you missed. So we need to think, how do we develop a dual hemisphere strategy? So Candace, I think that's the basis for the trip. I, I agree. I agree. And there has been pre to 2020, there used to be a lot of exchange trips of Brazilian growers going to the US, Midwest growers coming to Brazil, seeing, right, the, right. Right, seeing the, the, the challenges and the operations locally. I definitely think that it's a major opportunity for both sides. Well, you, you've got you've got us sold. You, you know, we're told there's a threshold of people's attention span on podcasts, and we've already gone beyond it. And we're still excited, and we can keep going, but we've got to be mindful of uh, everybody's time. So we're going to bring this episode to a close. But uh, Candace, I certainly think Francisco is a great candidate too. We we're going to need to talk to this guy again, and, Francisco. Uh, whether you know it or not, we just became friends. <laughs> so. We are, I have so many more questions for you. And I hope at some point I'll be able to offer you something as well. But thank you so much for sharing all of your perspectives today. It was, it was really great. Yeah, no, it really was. And any, you know, any kind of last thoughts for the time being that, you know, you'd want to kind of leave with our listeners up here. I mean, it's been a fascinating hour. Yeah, I want to emphasize how important agribusiness is to Brazil because it's on a different scale than what it is in other regions. So agribusiness, as of the end of last year, it was 26% of our GDP. So the whole industry, perhaps what what the U.S. calls food and food-related industries, et cetera. Now, this year, 2022, that is getting started, the projections for GDP, for agribusiness GDP, and especially for our new harvest, is to grow 5%. Meanwhile, if you look at the nationwide GDP for the broader economy, it's flat, perhaps even contract a bit. So that 26% is going to grow. This has major profound changes from a social perspective, political perspective. Economic. I mean, we hear a lot more country music on the radio. Uh, Brazil is a fantastic exposure. Well, that, that, that's, a, that's a good thing. It's a great thing. It's a great thing. I mean, it says there's a lot of suffering in Brazilian country music, uh, a lot of heartbroken, but it's fantastic. Oh, there you go. That, well, that could be its own episode, Candice. We can... Uh... We can we can uh, we we can play around with that, you know. Who who said we don't always have to be serious? We can mix it up sometimes. That is funny. Yeah. Well, you know that begs the question: is who who are your country superstars? Yours or ours or both? No. So so Garth Brooks is very big here. Uh, Dolly Parton is very big here. But we have uh, uh, Jorge Mateus. We have we have some heavyweights over here. Yeah, we we had a big tragedy. One of our biggest singers, uh, Marília Mendonça, passed away in a plane crash uh, about uh, a month ago. Oh, that's so right. Was, I saw that. Yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a very sad end of the year, uh, and and there was a major commotion. So so country music is big, and it shows how important agribusiness is okay. to our culture right. and to our to our country. I think it's definitely a fabric of life. And we've been looking at the studies done by a major economist here called Roberto Rodriguez, a legend in our sector, and it's been showing how the labor force has been behaving in ag over the past twenty years in Brazil. And he's showing there are less people working in ag, but incomes are growing significant in ag. So what shows us is that ag is becoming a much more high value industry here in Brazil, which goes to show productivity growth, tech adoption, and we see that continuing on. Well, that's an important story too, because, you know, Candace smiled earlier in our conversation because we're working with, uh, in fact, I think she aired this week, California Secretary of Ag, Karen Ross, we're working on a project on, you know, what are the skills required for the next generation of ag workers? One, we got to make sure we get them, but two, they're going to require more skills. They're going to be better working conditions and they're going to make more dough. And uh, given those numbers and percentage of GDP in Brazil, uh, it looks like we uh, we need to keep an eye on Brazil. Yeah, pretty exciting. That is. Yeah, that no, is. It really has been. Now, Francisco, hey, ter- terrific to see you. We're going to put this in the to be continued category. <laughs> Candice, uh, I'm hoping by the time the day ends, uh, we won't get into the utility conversation mix and name names, but 
We hope they get their power, your power restored like they said they would. Thank and, you very much. And uh, we'll be back uh, next week with a, another episode of Voices of the Valley. And uh, Francisco, terrific to see you and enjoy summer. It was Thank a pleasure, you, Francisco. Candace. It was an okay. honor, Candace. Okay. All right. We'll see everyone next Bye, week. Bye, guys. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Voices of the Valley podcast, brought to you today by Western Growers Association, supporting producers that grow the best medicine in the world. Find out more at WGA.com.